0: welcome to dangerously likely i'm caleb i'm torrence
1: and i'm terrell
0: and today we're dangerously likely to talk about bipartisanship part two
1: let's go above the fold with this week's headlines
0: so per the New York Times, last Sunday night, Democratic legislators in the state of Texas led a walkout over a vote on one of the strictest voting bills proposed in the country, eliminating the quorum needed for Republicans to pass it. Since then, both sides have dug in, with Democrats vowing to continue to fight it and Republicans vowing to pass it in a special legislative session. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is even threatening to withhold pay from the lawmakers because of their failure to pass this voting suppression bill. The voting bill is one of the strictest proposed by state Republican legislators in the country, including but not limited to banning both drive through and 24-hour voting, new restrictions on absentee voting, more authority and autonomy for partisan poll watchers, worse punishments for mistakes by election officials, limiting early voting on Sundays from specifically 1 p.m. to 9 p.m., which coincides with the Black church souls to the polls tradition. It's also notable that Republicans control all three branches of government in Texas. While Democrats have succeeded in blocking the passing of this bill for now, Republicans in the state are confident it will pass in the near future. We've talked about these voter suppression bills many times, so I want to get both of your quick takes on the importance of passing voter rights legislation in Congress or HR 1. Uh, Torrance, let's start with you.
2: Well, if <laughs> to any of our listeners who who listen regularly uh they know exactly where I stand on voter suppression um I think it is uh among the deepest evils in the universe uh the un- the, rather the universe of democracy because it is the foundation of a democracy um and that's what we claim to be the beacon um of the world as as the leading democracy and so I just want to reiterate that I think that this is a pl- blatantly partisan i think that it should be very clear to people um they're they're no longer i mean just like during the trump administration they were saying the quiet part out loud and now i'm like they're doing the quiet part out loud and they're doing it quite loudly um and so i think you know I, i applaud these democrats for doing what they could in a system that's stacked against them in you know in texas where all three branches are controlled by republicans like i mean this was simply just a delay i mean that is that Mm -hmm. is the reality of it but i think that they've done the right thing and drawing more attention to it um in hopes of probably funneling you know more money to, to fight this or um with hopes that with more pressure on the republican party in texas that this wouldn't get that this won't eventually get passed but it's not seeming to do to do that obviously as you noted um governor abbott has dug in but quite frankly, none of this should be shocking to anyone who's been paying attention.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, um, (laughs) I would argue it's not the quiet part because they've been doing it forever. I would also argue that there was a segment on inside politics, maybe something on CNN. Um, I haven't been watching the news lately, so I'd just catch random blurbs on the Twitter, ironically, but In saying that, a political operative for the conservative base mentioned that the Republicans were in a very tight spot right now where they had to do certain things for optics, one of which being voter bills, um, voter suppression, voter rights, so forth. And someone very artfully responded that, um, yeah, they have to now, after pushing this lie for the last umpteenth months, that the election was stolen, they now need to trump up no pun intended all of these different reasons why our election was never secure to begin with. And the the facts, the data, the information just isn't there to justify these attacks on our voting rights or um, grant them the ability to to drudge on. And I again can't help but think about the fact that none of this would happen had the Supreme Court not Um, inappropriately stepped in in a place that it wasn't actually
0: welcome. Or if the Republican Party didn't decide to go down this route either. I blame the Supreme
1: Court before them. And then I blame them for taking advantage of having the option.
0: It's the same story here as it is in like a bunch of other states, right? The Republican controlled legislator and governorship are passing voter suppression bills, absolutely disgusting and abhorrent and blatantly racist. I think what Torrance meant by the quiet part is, now they're actually saying it out loud, mm-hmm. and Democrats had the Democrats in the state had to do um, what they had to do, and they will continue to. But I think the fact of the matter remains that we got to pass HR one.
1: Absolutely. Before I jump into my stories, um, I did want to just give some recognition and some praise to y'all for allowing us to one do above the fold, but also give above the fold space to talk about global news. Um, I don't know if you both saw, but on Twitter recently, the humanitarian crisis in Ethiopia that's impacting the Tigray people um, was starting to become more of a prevalent conversation. And people were highlighting the absolute devastation that are happening to these people um, in that space. And I couldn't help but be thankful and prideful that we were able to bring that story to light for our listeners to talk about that story a little bit in depth. And also um, not follow the same, like Caleb, you and I talked about, not follow the same narrative of speaking to all the things that are happening in the U.S. and this echo chamber that we live in, but really giving it some space and some time to talk about what's happening in the country and why people should be concerned. So a little pat on our back before I jump into global news. But as I jump into it, per BBC, um, European nations are pressing Denmark and the U.S. as allegations of spying on allies increase. Um, While the FE, which is Denmark's version of the NSA, have refused to comment, politicians like Angela Merkel are concerned with reports that um, allies have been spied on allies. Specifically, NSA has been noted to have access to text message conversations, phone calls of different politicians across Europe. And this was all leaked out through um, uh, Snowden's leaks. Um, France has really kind of taken a step forward in calling out the hypocrisy of this and the disrespect that this might bring. And there'll probably be some more news that we can follow as the NATO summit prepares to come along. While I'm speaking on France, Macron visits um, Rwanda this past week, if I remember correctly, per the New York times, France looks to reconcile with Rwanda on a two day visit. Macron has championed revisiting the evils of the past to find partners in Africa. Specifically, he was quoted saying that um, the country had a duty to confront history and to recognize its part in the suffering inflicted on the Rwandan people. This all stems from a report that came from the French government and the United Nations that pointed out France had a direct um, part in the Rwandan genocide that happened back in the late 90s, specifically highlighting and noting that had the French government stepped in and be, been a little bit more forceful, the genocide might not have been as uh, egregious and as in depth as it was. As France continues to build relationships and partnerships in Africa, I also can't help but think about the um, stark contrast with America saying that we have to leave our past as past and look to the future. One last piece that I think all of us were a little shocked by late Sunday um, in Israel, news came out that a cooperation agreement and a governing governing agreement had been struck without the blessing of Benjamin Netanyahu to potentially oust him from his position from an opposition party. Now, as we move into Tuesday, news has been reported that Netanyahu backers are slamming right-wing parties as being traitors and going against the actual plans and and development of Israel, and they are actively fighting to stop this governing agreement from actually being brokered. Um, So even though we thought that Israel might have been in a space of a new political age, We are witnessing some continued confrontation as Netanyahu struggles to hold on to power.
2: On Tuesday, President Biden marked the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 with a visit to Oklahoma, Oklahoma, where he met with the three living survivors, each of which are between the ages of 101 and 107 years old, and gave a speech to those survivors, their families, and members of the Tulsa community who are doing the work to bring the true history of that night and its aftermath to public. This visit makes him the first president in 100 years to visit or publicly acknowledge the truth of what happened, where he was very intentional in saying, quote, My fellow Americans, this was not a riot. This was a massacre, among the worst in our history. The president went on to say, quote, For much too long, the history of what took place here was told in silence, cloaked in darkness. But just because history is silent, it doesn't mean that it did not take place. And while darkness can hide much, it erases nothing. It erases nothing. Some injustices are so heinous, so horrific, so grievous, they can't be buried no matter how hard people try. And so it is here only with truth can come healing and justice and repair. Only with truth facing it, but that isn't enough. End quote. In the president's speech, he explained the dark details of the two day massacre in an effort to shed light on one of the darkest moments in our nation's history that far too many Americans are unaware of. Throughout his speech, he revealed initiatives by his administration to acutely address the racial wealth gap, including an internal init- initiative being conducted at the de- Department of Housing and Urban Development to root out housing discrimination, highlighting that home homeownership for Black Americans is lower than when, it, than when we passed the Fair Housing Act, noting that this is an embarrassing statistic for our country and another iteration of the impact of systemic racism. In addition, the president connected the happenings in Tulsa in 1921 to the rise in white nationalism in the U.S. today, citing the FBI director's announcement that white supremacy is the number one domestic threat we face. He went on to announce that Vice President Kamala Harris will lead the legislative initiative to pass voting rights protections at the federal level, acknowledging the continued attacks on our democracy by Republican state legislatures across the country, and noted this is an important priority for his administration. In closing, the president said, quote, hate never goes away. Hate only hides. We must never give hate a safe harbor. Caleb Terrell, with President Biden being the first and only president to ever publicly mark this anniversary and speak truth about what happened in Tulsa in 1921, what do you think this says about our country's inability or for our ability to reckon with our past? Terrell, I'll start with you.
1: Um, this is one of the things that uh, Biden is good at. Uh, I reflect on um, President Obama taking a trip to Hiroshima um, and the conservative base calling in an apology tour where he became one of the first presidents to acknowledge the egregious actions of our country in the namesake of ending a war. And I'm cautious to see if that narrative gets projected for this. Um, it's not taught in our our education. People are not aware that there was a massacre that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. People didn't even know black people lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and when we're in a space right now where vice president Harris and Senator Scott are trying to make a, a an attempt to say that America is not racist. It's not entrenched in racism. This is a great example of why we need to be more educated on the matter. This is, a point to to show that at no point in time did African-Americans have an even shake in this country um, by owning property because their property would just be burned or, or ransacked. Um, the U S government would take it and build interstates over it. And there was never an opportunity for generations of African-Americans to really feel the full effects of prosperity in this country. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm thankful. I'm, um, I'm interested in how we as a society move forward.
0: Yeah, I think the, uh, I think our country has never been good at recognizing our past sins. Hmm. And I can tell you that I actually, growing up in North Idaho, going through the public school system, I had no idea about what happened in Tulsa until I went to college. Um, and even then I wasn't taught that in any of my classes, I guess I wasn't taking history classes, but, um, I learned that through just different friends I made along the way of being involved. And I think, I think a good starting place of how we can further understand our past and begin to heal as a nation is through education. I think it, I think it can start. Um, warning it in in grade school and maybe college too. Um, and even though we haven't recognized it really until I feel like recently uh, with Joe Biden, maybe, I don't know if we've, I'm not saying we've really recognized any of it, but I will say that Joe Biden did recognize um, what happened in Tulsa and that's a really big deal. It certainly is getting maybe harder. Uh, may have always been this hard. But um, like we were kind of saying with with my above the fold piece earlier, um, with uh, one party active blatantly, basically saying the quiet part out loud, um, that's what they're doing with the idea of systemic racism in what's happened in the past and in our education system. So I echo you and I'm interested to see what happens in the future. And this is a really important step, but it's. Um, uh we got a long long ways to go to heal as a nation and to actually reconcile with our past
2: yeah i absolutely agree and i i just if you don't mind i want to touch on a few things that he talked about that i thought were like really notable in his speech mm-hmm. for one being the first president in our history over these 100 years since it happened um to even speak about this or mark this anniversary um i will say that his speech was really great and that it was not kind to those who would who needed to hear um the veracity of that massacre how um terrible it was and and the lasting impact he he did a really good job of um and, and to, to go so much as to say he was vivid in detail about the killings of people the the, the way the way that people were killed the way that dead bodies were hung over fences and mm-hmm. things like that as to make the point that this was no riot as it has been um called before the tulsa race riots but this was no riot this was a massacre there, there, there were not deaths of white people. There were hundreds of deaths of black people. And then they only marked, they only took an official count at that time of 36 deaths when we know it to be in the multiples of hundreds and that the Tulsa Commission um, that has raised $30 million is now ex- in the process of exhuming graves to get a more accurate um, count, counting of the killings there. Um, and for those who don't know, when we say Tulsa, we do mean the, the Greenwood um, neighborhood in Tulsa, which was an all black neighborhood that was thriving, had its own banks, its own businesses. Um, It was in in some ways doing better financially than it's, it's neighboring white town. Um, And Eight out of the 12 uh, black churches that existed in Greenwood were burned down. Only, you know, the, the final four were still standing and some are still standing today and are the only reason some of this history is even told and has has lasted these past hundred years as there were not many survivors. Um, I also think that he did a really good job of connecting that th- that these things were real. The impact of this, the, the race, um, the racial violence in this country has had the, the, a huge economic impact Um citing one of the survivors who spoke in Congress last week, who, you know, who was living, described a community where her, where her father um uh, was doing well where they had they had community they had wealth and culture um but that she, because of that she never finished the fourth grade and then never made much money because of it. These are real economic impacts that that are being felt and that there has to be an answer for them and that his his discussing this anniversary in conjunction with uh, rolling out initiatives to to acutely address the r- racial wealth gap I think is a good pairing of of public p- policy and conversations um as well as I think that him understanding that a lot of the African American plight and the the a systemic issue that has contributed to our lack of power—not just economic power, but actual de- democratic power—has been voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression. And him reiterating and announcing, um, his, his appointing the vice president to lead these legislative initiatives. I just think it was all tied together very well. Um, and I applaud him for not only just going out and saying something about this, but making a very intentional action to show that the priority of of racial justice in this country and how he's not going to stop talking about it. And he's going to continue to expose um, what has been too often swept under the rug about our history. And so I, I give him a round of applause on that, even though he's not perfect. I think he's doing what most others did not expect him to do in his presidency.
1: One other thing I would add too, is I wonder if, if this would be a conversation we're having had Lovecraft country not been a thing, I wonder if the American populace would even know that this was a conversation to have because that was such a centerfold in a major show.
0: Uh, That show came out after like the whole Juneteenth stuff last year. And I think that was part of that conversation.
2: Yeah, I was actually going to say I think it's like the the, the confluence of um, Watchmen. And the, the, the premiere episode of Watchmen really putting putting this on the radar, the racial justice movement last summer, and Lovecraft Country. I think it's you're precisely hitting the nail on the head that it is about the public's knowledge of it and public opinion on these kinds of things. Like right, like because when I heard that he, that no other president had ever spoken about this publicly or marked the anniversary, you shake your head. Well, how the heck did President Obama not right? But we understand two thousand eight two thousand. Uh, 2016 to be a very different America when it comes to racial justice and what we are allowed to discuss and what the consequences of that have been. And so uh, I think that it is a confluence of those factors at becoming more in the zeitgeist of, of the American public's interest
1: So before we get into our main story, um, it's been brought to my attention that there were some concerns after our last episode because I decided to play contrarian. Um, for those who are listening, I'm sure y'all are aware I do tend to do this sometimes on the pod. While I love my co-hosts and the conversations that we have, I also own that sometimes we do get into a space where we bo- we all agree, right? We all agree on a topic and it just becomes this whose idea gets heard? So sometimes I I like to put on my Candace home, Candace Owen hat and see what happens. I might've gone a little too far into the role last time, but I just wanted to like clear up. I, I don't agree with most of the stuff I said. Um, <laughs> and I was just challenging to see what, uh, what perspective, what narrative, what things we could bring out from that to, to move us forward. So
2: just want to put that out there. And I had my typical response, as I do, to Candace Owen. Like, what the... Hmm?
1: You know, it is an accomplishment to leave Torrance <laughs> speechless, so I do own
2: that. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> gotta, be for the right, gotta be for the right reasons, though. Like, you know, Candace Owen, it's like, can you be that dumb? With me, it's always the right reason. Ooh. Whatever. <laughs> yes, so to continue a part of our conversation last week, we we really had some offline discussions about the importance of this conversation and... and how to frame the conversation around a framework that um, really addresses what we believe to be both the political and um, systemic issues um, that are at play here. Uh, we do think that this, both the definition around bipartisanship is a factor in how we discuss this. We think that um, we can't we cannot confuse the desire for bipartisanship or for the, the, endeavor of bipartisanship to be um, discussed in a framework that doesn't address some of the actions of the Republican Party or of specific members of the Republican Party to, that are very anti-democratic on, on its face. And, and some of that is so far as to the, the voting voter suppression bills that are sweeping some, through some of these Republican legislatures, mm-hmm. um, and what appears to be a setup um, to hold power at all costs essentially. And I say that not lightly, as in like, I do believe that some of the decisions they are making are so purely anti-democratic that the cost is, is at all costs, our democracy. Um, so we did want to come back and have another, another conversation and um, discuss more acutely some of the specific policies that we think that bipartisanship is playing a huge factor or the lack thereof. Um, and so I want to jump right in specifically this last week um, after we recorded their the Republican party released a counter offer to the white house's offer for infra- infrastructure deal. And this new, this new offer was 928 billion, which is up from their previous, um, 568, I believe. Yeah. 568 like billion. No, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, precisely 568 billion. Um, which it is an increase, but I also think that the devil is in the details here, guys. So like I have made the argument constantly that I do not think that they have been having this in bad, in good faith. Um, precisely because, Although the power um, dynamic is just slightly off, we do have more governing power, and they seem to still think that our job is to compromise way far past 50% as if they've got just as much power or more and that we're supposed to be compromising with them. Or I, And that's why I do not believe that they are be, they've been negotiating in good faith. Now, I do not want to say that so much about Senator Shelley Moore Capito um, out of West Virginia, who has been tasked with leading these negotiations in the Senate for the Republican Party, um, but I think that... Um, as far as like what they continue to offer, it's not in good faith. And I I say that specific with this counter offer because, um, as much as they do add money to this, a lot of the, the money that they added to the to the new offer, a part of what they've included in that bill is actually already baseline infrastructure spending that we've already agreed upon, or rather actually infrastructure investment that was already agreed upon in Congress. And so the actual total new increase is not upwards of $400 billion as they as suggested by the numbers, but actually only $257 billion um, in new money applied to this bill. So it's one, misleading, and I think that the way that they wrote the bill that way in the counteroffer is also a sign of bad faith. They want it to appear to be more, but they've just included another another part of another bill that was already passed in this one. And I think that that is really frustrating. So, um again, it still doesn't even meet us halfway on the spending bill on the spending bill, both the first and second that the White House has put out. I so much for bipartisanship I will Senator say, Manchin
1: I will say that one of the arguments from um conservatives in this space is also that they, how do I word what I'm thinking? The administration has been very thoughtful to pull out some of the more expensive parts of the infrastructure bill and now embed it into other pieces. So when we're speaking on good faith, there is a feeling on the um, right that the administration is acting in good faith because while they might not like these policies, they are now putting it in other things that they're probably going to vote to approve um and that's how they're bringing the number down so they're not actually changing the number they're just reshuffling the priorities so and i'll and and
2: and i'll i'll I'll, it is a valid point and i'll give that but i also think that the another part of like this rather like good faith outside of just the numbers and how the bills are being written i think that one of my like key criticisms of the republican party specifically with with legislation or policy because i feel like they've become a party not so much interested in policy and so much more interested in politics and culture wars that they we cannot like we all can agree that this bill the infrastructure bill is overwhelmingly popular by both republicans and and democrats and that it's because as a country we outside of politics and at that we understand that we have an infrastructure problem both the physical infrastructure that the republicans are more or more um on board for which is bridges and roads um mm-hmm. airports etc train tracks etc but and they disagree on the human infrastructure elderly care child care but we also have to understand that, like when we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about infrastructure for a social society. How do we get people to work? That's highways and, and bridges. How do we get people traveled to for commerce and business? Right. That is a part of what we mean when we're talking about infrastructure. So let's get down into into it and let's define it. We are it's infrastructure to create a society that is conducive to the open market capitalism that we are, that we have pursued as a country. And when we don't have part of we have part of our workforce who can't go to work because they don't have childcare, or we have people who are staying out of work to take care of their parents or their grandparents because of elderly care, then how much is our infrastructure, both physical and social, really working toward the goal? The goal is a working society that that has a large GDP and productivity, and that's why we invest in infrastructure. So if we're going to define it down and we're going to talk about what's the purpose of what we spend money for, our government, then I think that they're not addressing the problem appropriately.
1: When you speak to GDP in those spaces, what are you, What do you hope to see um, uh, when we think about policy, when we think about bipartisanship, what do you hope to see be that catalyst to improve or to move forward or to, to rebuild, I guess, that standing for America?
2: Well, no, I guess that's what I'm trying to highlight here. And thank you for the opportunity to clarify probably what I was just saying is that we use, like I mean, when we're talking about infrastructure, it's not just for nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Like we need to have good roads and we need to have like good mechanisms um to, to travel so that like business is fruitful, so that the economy grows and is produ- productive. But when we don't, when we, what we have been seeing in a trend over at least the last 15 to 20 years where we're women aren't able to work because the price of childcare is so expensive that the, that the weighing the options between working and not working sometimes is better just stay home with the kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Or that because, uh, we, because of the way that like, you know, the economic wealth has been distributed in a disparate way between generations, we're now seeing a lot of, um, you know, people have to take care of both their children and their parents. And this, their side of the bill recognizes those to be barriers to a fruitful and well-running economy because we can't have part of our workforce. Like we can't have mothers staying home just because like we, like we, have created an economy where it's not conducive for them to work because childcare is so expensive. Those are barriers to mm-hmm. our, econ- our economic growth. And I think that the Biden administration and Democrats more acutely do realize this. And that's why we have built it into this infrastructure deal because we recognize it as that. And I think that we should be talking about what are we doing this for? They're trying to meet the end goal. And I think that the others, the other party and, uh, is, I don't want to say like they're not addressing the problem at all because they are, but they're not acknowledging the whole problem and therefore not addressing it.
0: Well, the Republican Party doesn't agree with the Biden administration's um, definition of what infrastructure is. They don't. They just. They just don't think humans are a part of that. They're just thinking roads and bridges.
2: Oh, I know. Yeah, which is why I was drawing the point of like how and why we should define it
0: well, this way. I think in the in the um, under the idea of bipartisanship, I think with this bill specifically, bipartisanship. It doesn't feel very possible to me for a couple of reasons, because Republicans will never agree to what the Biden administration says about infrastructure in terms of also including human infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they'll also ever agree to how it's paid for. Exactly. Yep. And ironically, the most popular provision of the infrastructure bill is the Democrats plan to tax the wealthy more. And Republicans have already came out and vowed against that. Like, Mitch right. McConnell's and I think already that it, said
2: that. Yeah. I think it's like important to point out that the Republican counteroffer—the way that they are planning to to pay for this—is largely by repurposing mm-hmm. money from the COVID nineteen relief bill, as well as not up, uh, increasing taxes at all because they are staunchly against that. No, mm-hmm. to put taxes—I mean, not put like, put fees user on certain fees. things, f- yeah, user fees, gas tax, et cetera. Uh, so increasing fees on roads on highways, et cetera. So like that's yes. that's ridiculous and added fee tax on flying. This is ridiculous. But Why? When, you,
1: when you look at when you look at their their premise and their base. And maybe I'm just being too hopeful that there's still some glimpse of the conservative party I once knew, but they, they come from a space of limited government and they come from a space of the government. The federal government specifically is so bloated right now. It's spending too much money. National debt, blah, 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 blah. Yes, I know. Hypocrisy. Trump administration ran up the debt. Don't let that enter this part. Um, it makes sense why you would look at and say user fees. So if we're going to do all of this, we want uh, we want the non-government space to pay. We want we don't want government to be the only thing. We want to look at the private sector and how can the private sector be involved in infrastructure and growth and development, blah, blah, blah. Um, but one thing I also would highlight too with the counter offer that I personally was intrigued by is they looked at covid relief funding and unused covid relief funding and used that to help move their number up is there an opportunity there for the administration to potentially start exploring are there budgetary items that we know have become expenditures that aren't doing the work that they need to and do some shifting
0: <laughs> hypocrisy has entered the chat <laughs>
2: yeah no like i think that like the issue here is that to, to bring up, tie it back to like the differing definitions of bipartisanship. Also, that's like being offered by one the White House versus traditional bipartisanship, which is defined as both members of the Democratic and Republican Party working together in Congress to pass bills. Rather, as the White House is defining bipartisanship as well, we are going to pursue policy that is broadly popular among the American people, both mm-hmm. Republican, independent, mm-hmm. and, Demo- and Democrat, and you know how I feel about democracy. I feel like I am more for a more pure form of democracy. Therefore, when we have overwhelming evidence and and statistics and data telling us that this is what the American people agree with, then you know that that's where like where where I'm largely going to be on things uh, mm-hmm. with obviously within reason. Like, but I think that again they don't acknowledge the whole issue, and that's what's ridiculous. Like, at what point? It's okay, so like they want us to continue to pay for more, but they continue to not ask corporations to pay their fair share. Because again, and I know this is like, well, Torrance, this is just the politics of the Republican party. This is how they feel, right? Like I know <laughs> for decades, they they can sit there and act like they don't acknowledge it, but this trickle down economy hasn't fucking worked. Okay, has. it has not worked. And I'm getting so frustrated because that's why it's bad faith because you cannot look me in the eye and say you do not see the statistics in the economy as a Republican, not you. Like mm-hmm. at Republicans yes. and say that they don't acknowledge the overwhelming disparate economic impact that our economic policy has had over the last four decades yep. on average Americans. And they mm-hmm. say, oh no, well, no, we can't possibly raise the tax rate up to lower than it was previous to the last administration. We must give put more on the backs of American people who have had stagnant wages for decades. Fuck off.
1: That's the it's key ridiculous. though, right? That's the key. And that's why I I highlighted your piece on GDP. For them, trickle down economics has worked. The the GDP is astronomically higher than where it was under Reagan. Corporations are able to do things that have made them able to purchase more, be more involved in economies, do more, blah, 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 right? It, so when you and I are talking about this, I completely agree. For the average American, trickle down economics never worked. It never did what it was supposed to do. It never really dripped past the top, I'll give, I'll be generous, 15%. But when you look at the conservative party, the idea of we're cutting out government. We are making sure that our economy is better than X. Right now it's China. It's done its job. And that's why I think when we're having these conversations and we're speaking about bad faith, the issue of bipartisanship is not bipartisanship. It's the fact that our government no longer, as you've highlighted, is working towards a democracy. It's the fact that our government is stuck in these in these wars, right? I mean, offline, I shared that um, article with you that talked about the first time that Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell got into it over some language and some bill, and they've been at war ever since. Our two-party system is genuinely the issue that we have. I, I've said this a few times to so y'all. If If Nancy Pelosi goes for speakership, I'm genuinely fearful that the Democratic Party will split because the left wing of the party has made it very clear in the House they do not want the old guard still running this party. They want new ideas. They want younger people. They want uh, uh, multicultural people in this space. And I don't know if Pelosi can, can balance that. While on the other hand, Kind of like we talked about in the last episode. Yeah, the Republican Party that is struggling to keep all of these factions together. Just under the the idea that Democrats are the Antichrist. How much nicer? Insert question mark um, Could we be? How how better could our politics be if there were actual coalitions and we stop using the stupid logic that oh, the Democrats are just a caucus because they have different people with different ideas. No, you're forcing them all into one party, hoping that they all vote the same way. And then being able to say that, oh, uh, uh, I can't think of a good senator right now who I actually like, which is really sad. Uh, Murkowski, even though you're close to the center, we can't, That's I said- That's where we landed. I can't say, I, like I said, I couldn't find one that I like. <laughs> She's just an easy target. Um, Murkowski, <laughs> You're closer to the center, but we can't actually make an agreement with you, not just because you are kind of titled as a Republican, even though you you say you're an independent, but because we as a Democratic Party don't have the ability to flex and open up and bring in and really design a coalition the way that any modern government right now functions.
2: And and I certainly don't. Disagree with like the the reality of the dysfunction of our government and and the and the factors at play there. However, in terms of bipartisanship, like as, as we're, from where we're at, right? Like you're acknowledging that like it's yes, bipartisanship is an issue, but that's because of the two party system that we've created, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I mean, Kayla, I mean, what do you think? At what point do we talk about like the anti democratic pursuits of one party, despite the breakdown of a two party system?
0: Uh, well just real quick like i don't disagree with you terrell that the two-party system is to blame i mean even george washington foresaw this (laughs) way back when (laughs) he warned against the two-party system Mm -hmm. and here we are george washington has his own issues oh absolutely absolutely (laughs) no i was just highlighting that one part but like having multiple parties i I don't know to me i'm just and maybe i'm just kind of in a cynical mood right now i just like multiple parties feels like it would work better, but then I just kind of look at Israel and it hasn't worked for five elections. That's But their politics are very similar to ours. Exactly, though. So why would it work here? But what I'm saying is, look at
1: Israel. The polarization. Yes, the polarization, but also look at Israel. Their multi-party system was not really a multi-party system until recently when... Benjamin Netanyahu's party legitimately separated, not because of a difference of ideas, but because they hated Benjamin Netanyahu so much <laughs> that a faction of his party separated to stop him from being the next prime minister. And surprisingly, it worked out for
2: them so which far. Which suggests it works, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because we could, we never could have had that with Trump and maybe we could have.
1: But I, 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 I want to use them as a great example, right? Because that could be where we're headed. in that political turmoil that mm-hmm. you speak of is a great example of why having two major ideologies claim that they can be a big tent and they can pull in and they can do eh, 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 can lead to this type of chaos and this type of dysfunction. And I, I mean, I'm right there with you, Caleb of being cynical.
0: Um, I'm kind of cynical. I'm in that cynical mood right now where, where how Torrance is talking about how, how could you, how could you be like as a Republican, how could you look at the numbers and, And not see that trickle down economics doesn't work, but I'm kind of in the cynical mood right now where they do that on purpose to just call the Democrats angry when it doesn't work, even though they're the ones blocking it so they can win
2: elections again and then still do nothing. Well, no. Yeah. And no, I actually think that's where. Yes, they they play the like pretend defense all the time. Like, you know, they, they, no, they, they do they all do. the time, right? Because like we're, we're often, cause what we're often doing, and I've spoken about like the difficulty of our political position often is that, cause we're usually introducing, a new concept, an unfamiliar concept, and maybe sometimes uncomfortable concept because we are addressing a problem that has gone long unaddressed or acknowledged, right, and so I think that politically we sometimes have a hard a harder argument to make to the American public because the Republican party frames things like, look, they're trying to take your way of life away that you know now that you're so comfortable with because you are a largely a w- white party who has not sustained the oppression of mm-hmm. Of this country and the disadvantages that have come along with that op- oppression, both socially and economically, and I'm not saying that to just to be like to be, to be like to create a, ra- a race dichotomy, but that is the facts of what the makeup of those two parties are overwhelmingly yeah. statistics, yeah. right? And so that that is a factor at play here. But again, like I, I think I get just so frustrated because one party, albeit neither party, are is perfect. One to me just seems to be addressing more of the real problems that all of us are seeing and and experiencing, and it's frustrating that that party pursuing good policy that will have good impact on people's lives does not does not give them more power or more a more political power rather even though the statistics uh and the data behind like what their policies are pursuing are, are much more popular than what the political polling shows and that's really frustrating to me because yeah. you know this is a little off topic but it's you know the, the report that just came out like a week and a half ago about how you know as millennials we own like what four point like eight or something like or four percent of the economy Mm -hmm. and when our parents were our age they owned about 20 percent of the entire economy which Mm -hmm. was more commensurate with their with their population share their demographic share of the population and ours is like 20 percent of the population but also 4.8 percent of the economy like that kind of insane disparity in in economic wealth over just four decades right like in in the grand scheme of things, not that long. It's just really beginning to get like fucking tiring. Like that's what the
1: hell? Because the median age of Congress is what graveyard. Um,
0: <laughs> graveyard.
1: Like yeah, I I completely agree. And I I look at that too as a symptom, right? While the frustrations with bipartisanship are justified, getting rid of the filibuster is not going to fix this. It's just going to be a, a pendulum. I know you two might disagree with me, and I. <laughs> well,
2: no, I not. know what you're saying when you say that, but it's also like, do, like this was like said recently that I thought was really interesting. And I want to get your thoughts on it. Is like you make an excellent point about my partisanship because the, there is a chance that like getting rid of the filibuster could screw us long term. Like that's not untrue. Like I do know that that's a possibility. Yeah. I I can see the political writing on the wall as a possibility, but Look I'm not going to put Court. it in the probability th- in like bowl yet, but rather like. I think that we have to understand, like, with the commission bill, right? Just another, like, example of, like, lack of bipartisanship or or actually maybe some bipartisanship, right? Like, 56... uh six of the republican senators were voting against get with us with the january 6th commission but this arbitrary number of it's got to be 10 or it's not bipartisanship yeah. that's i mean that's frustrating that's right it's Like issue. because that is bipartisanship 56 six republicans i mean that you're not going to get a whole other party that's not how it works you're not getting a unanimous agreement on legislation mm-hmm. so the, that's what's kind of frustrating is like the 10 number is also an issue because it's arbitrary mm-hmm. and then it also then No one voids the actual definition of bipartisanship, even by their definition, Mm -hmm. not to make that confusing at all.
0: Well, I'm really convinced that the Republican Party only uses the word bipartisanship uh, when it benefits them politically. I think there's only maybe like like we saw six Republicans or whatever that voted with us. Like there's maybe that or fewer that actually believe in the idea of bipartisanship and are actively working towards that.
1: Who are in Congress currently? I'll give you that. I think. Yeah, I think there are a lot of cowardless spineless humans who are in Congress right now who would never do that. Like, I'm sorry, but if Mitch McConnell ever came to me and was like, can you do me a personal favor? I'm telling him to fuck off and I'm voting my conscience just like he told us to do last time. Um, But you have a bunch of Republicans who are now free of Congress who are out speaking and saying all of the things that you want to hear, right? Um, But not to beat a dead horse, but I do think just to your point, uh, Torrance, right? Like you mentioned this arbitrary number and you say, it's not like we're going to create another party. I genuinely feel, and this is a revelation, I guess, for me as I've, um, come to grow, but that is the, the crux of the issue. That is the, the problem. And I mean, our education system has trained us that those were the most tumultuous times in American history when there were more than, uh, Two political parties. When there was a Whig party, there was a third candidate president who ran and took some electoral votes, and then there was the grand bargain that happened with um, John Quincy Adams. Like our education system has coached us into this belief that if you add in more parties, it becomes more of a problem than what we're facing now. But when I really think about and 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 look at, yeah, boy, that's an allegory on other things.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: when I really think about and look at where we are and how we get here and all of those pieces. Yes, I understand the filibuster and why people want to remove it. Yes, I understand why people are calling to just unseat senators who uh, played a role in the insurrection. Yes, I understand all of these pieces, but they really just feel like uh, attempts to fix symptoms, not the overall problem. Like the analogy I use with y'all, with the filibuster gone, you have a pendulum that's just going to be swinging. And the only way to calm that pendulum down is to add more balls and see as they all start moving in unison over time. That, that to me is the issue with bipartisanship that we see is we only have two balls that just keep hitting each other. One swings further than the other and they try to figure out center. If you add a third, add a fourth, add a fifth, you'll start seeing them shift
2: the exact same way whether they meant to or not.
0: Bringing physics to a political fight.
2: <laughs> well, you know, give, give them a reason to consolidate power right now that that same there's not enough adv- i think you're right i mean like i'm just kind of i don't want to say having this revelation right now but like i'll make the acknowledgement that like it spurred it provoked the thought that like there just isn't any incentive for it right now there's no one in- there's almost no incentive other than an altruistic approach to your damn job which like you know i'm more pro but like it yeah there is just no political incentive for the for bipartisanship right now and that's what's frustrating it's it's a part of the larger political issue
1: So are we other than for us, other than for us? Are we creating a third party? Is that what I just heard here? Like, are we starting that move? (laughs) I, I think um, (laughs) absolutely. I'm a
2: progressive Democrat.
1: (laughs) I think, I I think Asaf and I think Asaf specifically has set the stage for a younger coalition of progressives to make a bull or not a bull party, a moose party and still run and caucus with the Democrats, but really say. Now is the time. Like we as a generation are not being represented in Congress. We as a generation are literally carrying this country right now and yet are questioning if we can buy bread and milk on a good day because we're paying rent at the same time. Like, is it that egregious to say, you know what, all the LGBTQ multi-race, the people who care about the things that are happening, the young people who are going to be the next Um, Nancy Pelosi's Henry Reid's these might not be good comparisons but deal with it make a party run challenge primary do what Murkowski did and run as an independent and win and really do some sizable change in Congress
2: oh yeah I was just gonna say that I think that like a slow way the only way like my political mind can kind of like perceive it right now is like, I think that part of doing that is like, you're right, like, yeah, keeping a coalition with the party that you feel more aligned with, but like, need us not be so afraid to run against the establishment, run as a progressive, run as an independent, like, caucus with who you agree with, right? Like, if you need to, but don't be afraid to say, well, no, I don't, I'm, I don't need the democratic support. I'm going to run as an independent, as a progressive. Like, that's the kind of way that we start chipping away and taking actual democratic power, right? Like, doing it the right way and so and seeing where that gets us. So I think that we were having an off-air just for the listeners, like kind of tip, we were having an off-air conversation, like, well, what do we say about like what are actual steps to doing mm-hmm. something about this if we're gonna go out there and like make this analysis about it, which we believe to be largely true? I do think that it's the doing what you can, taking the small step of pushing back on what we believe is believed to be the right system.
1: Also for like Candace Owens, uh, whatever that boy is on TikTok whose dad was a football player the oh, the oh. other the white girl uh white, i literally can't name another conservative personality right now anyway this is also for y'all like hey the establishment isn't doing everything you want why don't you guys start a party run to the side of them see what happens
0: <laughs> that was some pot stirring <laughs> <laughs> my take on on mul- multiple parties in america is it'll take it'll take time and political courage Yep. lots of time and lots of courage because because people who want to make a new party will have to face a lot of courage that they're going to lose a lot before it starts to work over probably decades you just need a wealthy backer there was almost a black oh,
2: party. stop oh stop he always ruins the good point doesn't he <laughs> there
1: there was almost a black party <sighs> and p always. diddy and um p diddy was trying to get jay-z to buy in and then little Wayne decided he wanted to wear a Trump hat and it all kind of fell apart. But like,
0: just get a wealthy donor. We could speed this up a little bit.
2: But I do <laughs> so grassroots it. Thank you. That was fun.
0: <laughs> I think long story short is, you know, maybe it is the multiple party route um, that I guess gives us the idea of bipartisanship that we want and fixes the Senate or whatnot, um, but. We got to figure out something because we have one party that is on the side of Americans and we have one party, and maybe they don't speak for everyone under the hat of that party, but we have one party whose leaders are actively trying to undermine democracy and we got to do something about it.
1: Take us on a tangent, Caleb.
0: Okay, y'all. So this past weekend, I had two significant TV events happen to me. The first one was, if anyone in the audience has watched this HBO Max show, we love a good HBO Max show here at Dangerously Likely. *Mera* um, of
2: Oh, Kate Winslet, baby.
0: That is a fantastic show. And me and my girlfriend, Maya, just watched uh, the season finale on Sunday. and. It was emotional. The acting was awesome and uh, it had one last great twist. So I just wanted to recommend that for everybody. The other thing is, is I started binge watching a show on Apple TV plus called for all mankind. And I love a good show. That's an alternate history of events that took place. And this show is all about the space race in the cold war. And, Basically, what happens in this show, that's the alternate history of it.
2: Are we spoiling right now? No, this the trailer oh, okay, says okay. what this is. This is what oh, the show is about. No spoilers. About. Okay.
0: The show's about um the space race, but instead of us getting to the moon first, the Soviets do. The Soviets get the first man on the moon. And then the US basically says the space race isn't over and the show's still gone. And it's uh very it's interesting to see this kind of play of events um, from what actually happened. And it follows along with actual presidents we had and whatnot. And there are kind of political motives behind all of this and whatnot. And also recommend that show. It also, one last thing about it, what it does really well is in the intense moments of the show, I found myself on the edge of my seat and holding my breath. And then when Mission Control celebrates or whatnot, I'm celebrating with them. It really, it really grabs your attention and pulls you into the moment. And I really love a show that does that. Take
2: us on a tangent, Torrance. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So I want to start by saying uh, I would be remiss not to mention it. Today we are recording on June one, so Happy Pride Month to all of my allies, gays, and Woo! they. Uh, I am really excited about um, Pride Month, but I want to go ahead and actually kick off today um, with a little bit more of like an educational approach to Pride um, and why it exists and why we celebrate in June um, and what the catalyst for making June Pride Month is. Um, I think that sometimes are, and luckily not so much anymore as it used to be in the past, I think that some people misconstrued Pride with like this, well, why do we need to just you know celebrate being gay? Why do we need a whole month to celebrate being gay? And that, that couldn't be further... Then the truth of what the impetus for Pride Month is, Um, and the impetus for Pride Month for those who don't know is that it it marks the Stonewall Riots um, that happened on June twenty eighth, nineteen sixty nine, at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, um, which was a uh, gay club that served gay, transgender, you know, it was a multiracial club that in nineteen sixty nine, and it was uh, the start of the modern gay. Um, rights movement or the LGBTQ plus um, rights movement. And the impetus for that came after an escalation of police brutality against LGBTQ plus people in New York, um, and then was ignited by a raiding of Stonewall Inn uh, by the police, by the New York police, because in New York in 1969, they did not grant liquor licenses to um, bars that served gay people. Um, And so that was what their gave them the right to uh, raid and then the actual riot that took place that is the catalyst for uh the lgbtq rights movement in, mm-hmm. in the u.s because two um trans women of color through the first bricks and that you know those are credited to marsha p johnson a black trans woman and stormy deliver um, a um a latinx trans w- um man and uh they both, like, you know, Marsha P. Johnson went on to to die a very tragic death um, that we still don't know all the details around. Um, And the reason that we uh, celebrate in June is because of those events. And I want to, you know, draw some attention to more more acutely to the trans community um, amongst the LGBTQ plus community, because here in 2021, thus far, we've already had 27 trans women, um, largely all of color, um, murdered violently, either by gunshot or other violent means. Um, And these cases often go either Misreported, unreported, or, or not investigated, and ju- justice is almost never seen. Um, and that for a movement that has spurred so many LGBTQ rights and advancements in our laws um, and the rights that we receive, that was a catalyst by trans women of color. I just think that we, have, we as a community, have often done a disjustice to these, um, to these members of our community for the work that they've put in and have stood at the front. Uh, of the lines and often also been the targets of some of the most egregious um acts of violence and uh, disgust because of the mere nature of their gender identity um and the way that our heteronormative society um you know, puts puts them into to a box in that way and that and unfortunately some members of our own LGBTQ plus community do not uh, take it upon themselves to educate themselves and also support our trans brothers and sisters um and so I want to say even though you know the impetus for this was not about celebration we celebrate because and specifically dependent on the word pride, being gay, uh, being trans, being lesbian, being bisexual, being pansexual, the one thing that we don't feel for a very long time is pride about who we are. And there are way too many of us who never make it to the point of having pride in who they are. And that is why we celebrate. Because once you do, that is that is the small victory that we get in this life. And that is what we need to show other people so that they can have the courage to find that pride sooner. Um and quite frankly, showing that celebration of love and an acceptance of oneself um, so openly during June saves a lot of lives. And so we're going to continue to dance. We're going to continue to party and we're going to continue to fight for our rights. Happy pride.
0: Happy pride. Well, Terrell, take us on a tangent.
2: After you stole it from me the first
1: time, that should be my tangent. Um, There's so much. There's really so much. I'm, I'm frustrated with the Naomi debacle with the French Open. I'm frustrated with the Kyrie Irving debacle with Boston, which is a racist city. It's not a secret. Most Celtic, former Celtics fans have even said how they've been called inward, word how cops have pulled them over after they're leaving the games. Like, I get it. You don't like when people tell you what you look like to your face, but sometimes you just got to own it. Um... I'm frustrated with this backlash that Monique is getting for telling women not to wear bonnets at an airport, and people are acting like it's okay to attack a Black woman because she's saying her piece, and then Black women are jumping in like, this isn't how Black women should be treating each other. Monique had no... Like, it's not professional to wear a bonnet. It's not appropriate to wear your sleeping clothes out in public. I get the whole, like, do what makes you happy BS, but don't, don't get frustrated at someone saying, I grew up in a generation where this was frowned upon. I don't know when we changed because then people started making the argument that it was appropriate to wear do rags. Those became professional. The only profession I know that is appropriate to see a person, a do rag is a drug dealer. So no, um, I, yeah, I'm just frustrated with culture and social media and just straight up ignorance across the board. And like, again, how we treat certain personalities, right. Um, there's also been this rise of the idea of an industry plant, specifically claiming that her was um, planted in the industry oh, as an individual who was going to run up charts and and make a lot of music. But no one wants to say Olivia Rodrigo is a industry plant right now, even though she came out of legitimately nowhere. Her writing is oh, eh. Disney Channel. Her writing is <laughs> eh. Her music is now being compared to multiple other songs, one of which she actually had to give credit to Taylor Swift because it was literally the same instrumental. But her comes up with original songs, original content. Yes, her father happened to work in the industry, but for whatever reason, here's a bunch of people who want to say that this Black woman who's doing really great things at a young age is an industry plant, but we can't look at other people. Also, why did we come up with this term to begin with? Because last time I checked no one was talking about industry plants until literally her. So yeah, I'm very frustrated with just this overall narrative of anti-black sediment, um, specifically on social media, but across the board and also the mix that it's not just the, the Caucasians or white people, if you will, it's other black people taking an opportunity to put down black people. Um, And it's just causing undue stress. Like, there's no reason that Naomi needed to come out and say that she's going through some mental health challenges and doesn't feel comfortable speaking to the press. And then people start saying, Well, you do a lot. You deserve like you need to just show up at a part of your contract. No, she's a human at the end of the day. She deserves to be treated like such. So yeah, that's my that's my tangent. That's my rant.
2: Well, that's our show. <laughs> that's our show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Caleb. I'm Torrance.
0: And I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. See
2: you then.